0: All right, this evening, we're going to finish the second chapter, looking at verses 11 to 15. I want to begin with the rhetorical function of verse 11, because you'll recall that last time I left it out of the section 8 to 10, whereas most commentators will include it (coughs) with uh, verse 10 and extend that unit from 8 to 11. Now, I make my case for why this verse is unique and serves a particularly unique function in the argument of the prophet as he's unfolding God's revelation. The first thing that you will note is a change in voice. Now, what I mean by that is the speaker, We've noted from time to time that there is a dialogic narrative in the prophet Zephaniah, namely, God speaks and the prophet speaks. So in this instance, from verses 8 to 10, we've had the voice of God. Now, you could say arguably verse 10 doesn't have any quotation marks around it, and so it may belong to someone else. However, I've made my case for the fact that verse 10 and verse 8 are bound together as the frame of that unit, and therefore I think the speaker is the same, even though there's no quotation mark around verse 10. I still think it is the Lord himself speaking. But in verse 11, somebody else is speaking. You will notice that he is addressed by the personal pronoun. He will starve all the gods of the earth. They will bow down to him. Everyone from his place, that's not the relative pronoun for the deity there, personal pronoun for the deity. So the personal pronoun addressing God by the third person, third person singular suggests a different voice. And I'm going to argue that that's the voice of the prophet Zephaniah. So we have a change in voice from the voice of God in verse 10, actually the voice of God in that section from 8 through 10, to the voice of the prophet. In verse 12, the voice of God will resume. So verse 11 breaks the dialogic sequence or alters the dialogic sequence to a different speaker, namely the prophet himself. That's one indication of the uniqueness of this uh, 11th verse. Now, the second observation is the vocabulary of the verse. You will notice that in verses 8 and 10, we pointed out some parallel or symmetrical vocabulary. In the New American Standard, the vocabulary taunt, arrogance, my people. None of that vocabulary occurs in verse 11. You don't see the word taunt. You don't see the word arrogant. You don't see the word people in verse 11. It therefore stands apart in terms of the vocabulary of that previous unit and uh, once again points out its unique rhetorical feature. It has its own distinctive parallelism, however. You will notice that there is a symmetry of all, all the earth and all the nations in verse 11. So it has its own self-contained Symmetry or parallelism. However, in addition to the fact that there's no repetition of vocabulary in verses 8 and 10 or even verse 9, there are some words used in verse 11 that are used nowhere else in the book of Zephaniah. This verse has words in the Hebrew text which do not appear anywhere else in the entire book. The word that is translated terrifying in the New American Standard is a once-only word in Zephaniah. The word that is translated starve or make lean in some of your margins occurs only once in Zephaniah. And the word bow down, surprisingly, the word bow down, which is used here, is only used here in the three chapters of the book of Zephaniah. All right, so... We have a uniqueness of uh, vocabulary. We have a non-similarity of vocabulary. We have a vocabulary of symmetry within the verse itself, using the word all plus earth and all plus nations. In other words, the verse itself has a peculiarly unique position in the book, particularly in this second chapter. Now, why? Well, here is where I'm suggesting there's a distinctive rhetorical shift from regional proximity to remote imperial nationality. What do I mean by that? This verse is a bridge or transition between the regional proximity of Philistia on the west of Judah, Moab and Yemen on the east of Judah, and now, from verses 12 and, 14, uh, 12 and 13, on the international imperial powers. So, this verse stands between what is proximate to Judah, on the west side and on the east side. And this verse anticipates what is remote from Judah, that which is south of her and north of her particularly the imperial powers which are described in verses 12 and 13. You will notice then that the verse provides the bridge to the four points of the compass, the bridge to the, shall we say, harassment and antithesis and antagonism of those powers west and east of Judah and Jerusalem and those powers which are international and imperial in thrust south and north of Judah and Jerusalem. All right, I'm going to build on that in a moment when we take a look at the details of verses 12 and 13. But right now, we observe that the uniqueness of verse 11 is related to the flow of the argument, namely the movement through the oppressors, both regional and international. And finally, You will notice that word nations in verse 11. That word nations is proleptic, that is. It is projecting the particularly powerful nations. The nations of Egypt associated with Ethiopia and the nation of Assyria. These nations which are projected by this verse are the nations which have controlled the relationship between Palestine or Israel and Judah and the world for over five centuries, whether it was Egypt or whether it was Assyria. They are the dominant national powers which have antagonized, subjugated, taxed, invaded, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, Israel and Judah. So, this word here is particularly important in terms of what it signals in the change of view, the change of perspective of the prophet Zephaniah. He is now looking not just regionally, west and east, he's looking internationally. He's looking to imperial powers. All right. That's my justification for its uniqueness and the fact that it is a bridge or transition verse from this unit that deals with uh, Philistia, Moab and Ammon, and Egypt or Ethiopia and Assyria. All right, now, to that 11th verse in some detail, and beginning with the word starve, which appears in the New American Standard translation, some of your version may have, he will make lean, the gods of the earth. <clears throat> this is Zephaniah using irony. Now, what is ironic about this statement? God will starve the gods of the earth. Art, you smiling. Go, uh, go ahead, maybe. Maybe they were fat. They were fat. The gods of the nations were fat. But, uh, Art, you were smiling. Well, uh, the gods are idols. They don't eat, eat. Robert. Isn't this? You're talking about uh, nations that are the breadbasket of that region. That's an interesting point. Thinking of what nation? So if he causes famine to uh, exist there, to bring those nations down, right? Okay, you're thinking of it as a kind of metaphor for the collapse of the nations themselves. No, this is actually more pointed than that. Go ahead, Kay. Does it refer to a child? A killing of their children? No. No, not not specifically. What did those who worshipped idols believe? And what did they offer in believing? The gods fed them. Yes, they fed the gods, didn't they? In other words, the idolaters would bring... Libations, what are libations? Offerings by libation. What's that? A drink offering, what kind of drink? Wine, okay? So they would pour out wine as a libation, or libation offering on the altars of their gods. Sometimes they would pour it out on the sacrifices that they would burn on those altars. So why did they bring wine to pour out on the altar of the gods? Why did they do that? fruit of the land? Pardon? The fruit of the land? No, not really. Make God happy? The God was thirsty. He needed to drink. So you gave him wine to drink. <clears throat> Why did they offer meat and burn meat on the altar? God was hungry. He wanted to roast steak. Yes. Okay. All right. So they would bring fruit and offer it. And in fact, you see in pagan cultures, you still see this today. In the third world, you'll see people bringing fruit and, and meat and their lambs and so on, and, and even uh, their alcoholic beverages and pouring them out before the shrines of their gods and goddesses. All right. In other words, <clears throat> idolatry, in terms of its foolish superstition, believed that in bringing food to the gods, they were, food and drink, they're actually giving the gods uh, sustenance. They were building up their metabolism. Okay? So, so Zephaniah, Zephaniah is suggesting that God is going to play the same game. Correct? In other words, you pagans think your idols need food. I'm going to, I'm going to starve them. I'm going to derive them in food. I'm going to remove food from them. So the irony here is that God says, okay, I'll play that game. You think your gods need to eat, I'm going to take away their eatings, their vittles. Okay, so uh, this is a direct attack upon idolatry, but kind of like a sarcastic or ironic attack on idolatry. So the word translated in the New American Standard, starve, captures it very well, even though The Hebrew could literally mean make lean. You get the image. All right, now, I mentioned J.A. Matir before. He's written the most useful and capable conservative or evangelical commentary on the book of the prophet Zephaniah. There are other things that need to be said about that commentary, particularly what he doesn't do. But nonetheless, it is a very good uh, piece of work and is solid and stimulating in its own way, though it's not the last word. um, I've mentioned Ball's, Ivan Ball's dissertation on the rhetorical structure of Zephaniah, which I think has advanced the discussion significantly. And I'm trying to build on all of that myself, for good or for ill. Nonetheless, Mattier whom I actually heard speak once, many, many years ago, almost 40 years ago now. Uh, Very impressive. He's a British fellow and uh, very impressive evangelical, uh, very fine man. At any rate, uh, in his commentary on this verse, Mateer makes a statement about this verse, that is verse 11, the coming worldwide Israel. coming worldwide Israel. Now, why does he say that? The verse says... that the nations will bow down to him, everyone from his own place. And here's Mateer saying the coming worldwide Israel. Is J.A. Mateer a premillennialist? Does he think that all the world is going to become Israelite? No, he's not. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, let's hold our finger in Zephaniah 2, and let's go ahead to Philippians 2 for a moment. And we'll keep our fingers there and then turn to Revelation 7. But, Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11. And when you have it, would somebody just read it out? Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God is highly exalted and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus ever be. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God and the Father. Alright, now that's a passage that as we keep in mind uh, we combine in Revelation 7.9. So let's turn forward Revelation 7.9. And when you have it, go ahead and read that out. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the land, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Very good. Now, we put those two passages together, and do we have a universalism of this world? Do we have a universalism of this earth? Or when will all the nations? be Christian or is that what Zephaniah is suggesting is that what Paul in Philippians 2 is suggesting is that what John in Revelation 7-9 is suggesting what do you think do you think those passages justify an exposition or an interpretation that all the world will become Christian no doesn't seem to be full out there so when will every knee bow and every tongue confess? When will that occur? When, when do you usually think about that happening? Christ's Christ returns. At the second coming of Christ, yes. So, even those that don't believe in him are going to bend their knee? At the second coming? They're going to admit that he is the Christ? Are they going to be converted in admitting that he's the Christ? Why are they going to admit he's the Christ? No choice. No choice. Oh, yeah, they have a choice. They can still deny it, but they're not going to be able to deny it. Why? Because at that moment, the truth of Christ's identity and his power will compel them to bow the knee, and they will admit that he is the Christ, even though in bowing the knee they will hate it as they admit it. Satan himself will bow. All right, now, that's not going to happen in Jerusalem. It's not going to happen on the earth. It's going to happen before the throne of God, before the great white throne of judgment. So this is not a transnational conversion of the world that we're reading about in Philippians 2 and particularly not in Revelation 7 because in that portrait of Revelation 7, 9, these are those out of every nation, tribe, and tongue under heaven. It is not all in every nation, tribe, and tongue under heaven. It is those who have come out of it through the blood of the Lamb. All right, so um, when... Zephaniah is talking about the nations bowing down before the Lord. He is talking in the same category that John in Revelation, that is persons out of all the nations, or he is also implying that there's going to be a day when all the nations or those in all the nations will bow, as Paul suggests in Philippians 2. So that's what Matthias is getting at with this kind of worldwide Israel praise. It's the worldwide redeemed Israel that is going to bow before the Lord. It is the worldwide Israel which belongs to him, particularly by way of Revelation 7-9, by redemption of the Lamb out of every tribe and tongue under heaven. And we do believe that, do we not? We do believe that there will be Christians who will be gathered unto the Lord Jesus out of every nation, tribe, and tongue under heaven. We believe there'll be black Africans in heaven, do we not? We believe there'll be Indonesians in heaven, do we not? Filipinos, Japanese, Chinese, Uruguayans, Brazilians, Scotch-Irish, Dutch, I'm not sure about, no. (laughs) Well, I've been told so much many times, if I'm not Dutch, I'm not much, I kind of react to that, you see. (laughs) (laughs) Just teasing you. Okay, Um, when Jesus sends his disciples with the Great Commission in Matthew 28, he sends them with the power of the effect of the Spirit to bring men and women and children from every nation to whom the gospel goes. And that power of the gospel still goes forth. It still goes forth to places which have never heard the gospel, to tribes which don't even have a written language, to places where the word of God on the face of this earth still has not been heard. People who have been buried in jungles for centuries, for millennia, just being discovered. And the gospel reaches them in many cases. Remember the story of the Aka Indians in Ecuador, Jim Elliot, and so on. Wonderful story. Wonderful conversion narrative. Those kind of stories continue to happen on the mission field. And so we are committed to sending forth that wonderful gospel of redemption and salvation. Okay, so that's what Mateer was driving at. Namely, this Israel of God's elect in the sense of the spiritual Israel who is coming to him from all over the world. That is the promise that uh, Zephaniah is projecting in this verse by that phrase. Any questions? All right, I think you see that there's no kind of Latter-day glory notion here. Namely, a post-millennial vision of a Christianized world. Who of us wouldn't be happy with such a world, particularly at this time in our own world history? But I don't see any expectation of that in Jesus' projections or in the prophetic projections, even though this language of all the nations or the coastlands of the nations will bow down to him. This is... Not universalistic language, this is the language of the comprehensive ingathering of God's elect out of all the nations. And so, as optimistic as that sounds, that the world would become Christian by the latter-day outpouring of the Holy Spirit, I do not think that that's what the Scriptures teach, and I don't think that the language that suggests that from the Psalter and from the prophets implies that. Because one of the features of that language in the Psalms and in the prophets is that that in-gathering has eternal consequences that can only occur in an eternal dimension. It can only occur or belong to those who belong to an eternal dimension. It cannot belong to those who belong merely to a temporal dimension. All right, so now that we so uh, neatly disposed of post-millennialism, let's go on to the structure of verses 12 to 15. I have great respect for my postmillennial brothers. Uh, nonetheless, I think uh, they, they, they are too optimistic. I am very optimistic about where the Lord Jesus is right now. He's at the right hand of God in heaven and glory. And I'm very optimistic about those who believe in him going there. They don't need to have a Christianized world in order to be candidates for the kingdom, the eternal and everlasting kingdom of heaven. All right. Uh, uh, no more on that topic currently. Uh, if you want my eschatological observations, you can come to one of our classes, and we'll go through it in more detail. All right, the structure of verses twelve to fifteen. Now, when I asked, the, when I when I put that section about the structure of twelve to fifteen on the outline, you'll notice that I begin with verse thirteen and fifteen. What happened to verse twelve? Patience, children, patience. Okay, I will come back to verse twelve, but let's look at the patterning in verses 13 and 15. Once again, when I line up those blanks, I'm obviously suggesting that there are duplicates that correspond to those blanks. So let's take a look at verse 13, scan it, look at verse 15, scan it and see if you can pick out the the words that occur twice. Desolation? Desolation is one. It's not actually the first one. It's the second one. Okay, so put desolation in the second place on both lines. His hand? His hand, very good. Yes, the hand of the Lord and desolation frame verses 13 and 15. Now, verse 12 is outside of that frame. However, it inaugurates what that frame features. <clears throat> My point here is, that with verse 12, we shift to the international focus, which I've alluded to before when discussing verse 11. We are completing then the picture of the powers hostile to Israel and Judah from the four points of the compass. There has been not only regional opposition to Israel and Judah throughout her history, there has been international worldwide opposition to Israel and Judah throughout her history. And verse 12 is the beginning of the declaration of the fact that God is going to war against those nations, particularly imperial nations that have made war against his people. My point then is that verse 12 belongs to the completion of the sequence, namely the sequence of the four points of the compass, which began in verse 4 with the west side of of, uh, Judah with verses Eight, with verse 8, which is dealt with the east side of Judah, and now verse 12, the south side of Judah, and verse 13, the north side of Judah. All right, now verse 12 is translated in the NASB as, you also owe Ethiopians. <clears throat> now the Hebrew word here is not Ethiopian, it's translated Ethiopia. But the Hebrew word here is Cushim or kush, C-U-S-H. Kush, in the Bible, is uniformly regarded as Ethiopia. All right, now where would I find Ethiopia? You have a map, the Carta Bible Atlas map number 15. We've seen this map before when we look at Kaftarim and the origin of the Philistines coming from the island of Crete perhaps. But you will notice that Kush is on this map. It is below Egypt underneath the word ham there. What country is where Kush is labeled on this map? What modern country is there today? Is that Ethiopia? Today, is Ethiopia located where Kush is on that map? No. 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 What country is there, Robert? Uh, Kenya? No. That's further south. It's either Egypt or Sudan. It is the Sudan. Yes, that's the Sudan. Further south of the Sudan is the nation of Ethiopia. Now, what is labeled on this map, and I'm suggesting the map is a little bit inaccurate... What is labeled on this map in Kush was called in the ancient world, not the Sudan, but...
1: Did I, did I hear somebody saying, making a suggestion?
0: Well, you have Siba, so is that Sheba? No, no, Sheba is actually over on the other side where Sabta is, Okay. It's actually on the Arabian Peninsula. Queen of Sheba came from Yemen or around there. Okay. Um, ancient, what would be Kush on this map was Nubia, the Nubians. And the Nubians are very important because they also ruled over Egypt, the Nubian pharaohs, so-called Meroe dynasties, M-E-R-O-E. Okay, all right, now, we've got our geography uh, arranged, so we know that God is speaking to the power south of Egypt, namely Ethiopia. Why would he be mentioning this here? Why didn't he just say Egypt? Egypt certainly was a nemesis to Palestine, to Israel and Judah throughout our history. Why does Zephaniah go south of Egypt to Ethiopia? Because at one time, Ethiopian kings also ruled Egypt. The so-called black African dynasties that controlled Egypt in the 8th and early 7th century B.C. All right, now, um, going all the way then to the furthest point south in that direction from which hostility came and poured into Judah and to Israel is a way of indicating the imperial forces that are around that whole geographical direction, whether it is Egypt, whether it is Nubia, whether it is Kush, or Ethiopia, that region produced hostility against the people of God, and God is going to extend his sword to slay them with his own hand. Which raises the question about the fulfillment of this statement by Zephaniah. When did Zephaniah's prediction of chapter 2, verse 12, come to pass? Well, first of all, we will say it has to occur when? Sometime after Zephaniah prophesies, right? So it'd have to be after the 7th century B.C. because Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 1, is a contemporary King Josiah. 640, 609 B.C., 7th century B.C. So, in other words, if this is true, predictive prophecy, then the fulfillment of this statement in 212 has to come after the 7th century B.C., Well, is there any evidence that there was a conquest of Egypt or even Ethiopia after the 7th century B.C.? Yes, there is. Nebuchadnezzar leaves behind a statement in the Chaldean Chronicles that he invaded Egypt in 568 B.C. Now, how far did he go? We do not know. There is no record of how far he penetrated into Egypt, whether he just went into the delta region, which is at the top or the northern portion of Egypt, Which is usually where invaders stopped, although sometimes the Assyrians and the Persians went up the Nile to the to the cataract at Khartoum, at modern day modern day Khartoum. But it's not clear whether Nebuchadnezzar expended all that kind of energy to march his army all the way up the Nile River. But the fact that he did invade Egypt in 568, is a matter of historical record. It is conceivable, then, that that event could satisfy the fulfillment of Zephaniah 2.12. Any questions? All right. Now, we move on to verse 13, where God is going to stretch out his hand against Assyria, or in the Hebrew, Asher. Now, we'll look at the map in a moment, but let's begin with the Hebrew name Asher, actually a direct Hebrew translation of an Akkadian or an Assyrian name, Asher. And Asher refers to three things. That name refers, first of all, to a god, the god Asher. Now, who was the god Asher? What was he all about? Well, he's the patron god of Assyria. The Assyrians worshipped Asher. He's the chief god of their pantheon. What kind of a god is Asher? Well, he's symbolized with a winged disc. That is, his face is in the center of a disc which has wings on it. And that winged disc is always up above the horizontal, up above the worthy. It's always in the top of a panel. So that means that that winged disc is positioned where? In the heavens, heavens, exactly. In the sky, in the heavens, okay? Now, in this uh, picture of the face of Asher in the center of this disc, he's holding something in his hand. He's holding small thunderbolts in his hand. So what kind of a god do you think he is? What kind of a god do you think drove Assyria? It's like a storm god. Yes, not quite. Angry god. Yes, he's angry.
1: A war god. War god,
0: exactly. Asher is a god of war. All right, so Asher is a god. So that name can refer to a god. Okay? Asher can also refer to the nation the nation that follows Asher, the Assyrians, or the Asherians, okay? You could say that, all right? And finally, that name Asher refers, and here you can look at your map, it refers to a city. One of the famous three major cities of the Assyrian Empire, and two of them are on your map, number 173. You can see Asher right above the R in Assyria on the map. And north of Asher, you see Nineveh, which is mentioned in Zephaniah 2.13. And what is the modern day name of Nineveh or the region around Nineveh, ancient Nineveh? Mosul. Mosul. This is modern day Mosul. It's even in the news again today. All right, so there was one other city which was part of what was called the Assyrian Triangle, Asher, Nineveh, and Kala, C-A-L-A-H, the three major queen cities of the Assyrian Empire, the capital being Nineveh, after Sennacherib became king of Assyria in the 8th century B.C. He switched the capital from Asher, the city of Asher, city of, of the god Asher, to Nineveh because he wanted to build a more glorious and magnificent city, namely Nineveh with his palace and libraries and his, pa- his panels of uh, warfare, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Go ahead, Randy. Well, Babylon is not part of the Assyrian Empire? Yes, it is. It, but it is a city in its own right within the Babylon Empire but it is part of what's called the Babylonian or Chaldean portion of that empire. The Assyrians rule everything from the Persian Gulf, which is either on the lower right-hand side. You can't see it on the map. You see a little bit of the fingers of it. They rule everything from there all the way over to the Mediterranean Sea and down to the border of Egypt at the peak extent of their kingdom from 900 B.C. to 612, the so-called Neo-Assyrian Empire. Go ahead. David, if Asher was uh, the name of their god, what does him, uh, the name Asher Benaphol mean? Yeah, I, I, I'd have to go back and check the etymology, but it had something to do with Asher, the god Asher. But I'm not I'm not uh, sharp enough on Akkadian without uh, looking that up. All right, now, let's take a look at the map, or, or we should fill in the blanks there. So Asher can be a god, it can be the nation of Assyria, and it can be the city, one of the queen, three queen cities of the empire. Was called Asher, one point. No, the, the city is always, Nineveh is always the thing. okay, so Asher is near Nineveh. It's south of it. You see the map? It's, okay. it's south of Nineveh. All right, now looking at the map, go ahead. There's another question. What's the third city? Kala. Kala is the third city. It's not on your map. But it's just a little bit above Asher to the north and west. North and east, I'm sorry. Kala is on the map. It's below Nineveh. It's below Nineveh. Not on the map I handed you. At least I don't, I don't see it. I just fell off. C-A-L-A-H. It's on my map. a different map, you're looking at the first map. He's looking at the second map. Oh, I'm, uh, oh, there it is. Okay, <laughs> it was there all the time. <laughs> well, not on the same map. Thank you for spotting that, Bob. I didn't. I didn't even see it myself. So, well, you can put it just below Nineveh then, and above Asher. So now looking at map 173. This map diagram diagrams the fulfillment of Zephaniah 213. Name of the collapse of the mighty Assyrian Empire. The most feared, the most terroristic, the most brutal ancient empire. It's controlled for over 300 years everything between the Persian Gulf and the Mediterranean Sea. And what it did not control, it taxed. It placed under tribute, which is the reason that it harasses Israel while the northern kingdom is in existence and Judah while the southern kingdom is in existence by demanding annual tribute. That is, payment of what would be hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of silver and gold in order to keep the Assyrian army from looting, raping, and burning and pillaging. Okay, the Assyrian Empire was an empire of a war machine. That was what drove it. That was what motivated it. That's what made it so powerful. And ultimately, that's what drained it. So, on the map that you have, number 173, we have an outline of the last days of the kingdom of Assyria and the collapse and fall of the capital of the Assyrian Empire, namely Nineveh. And as you can see from the box, the date 612 B.C. Randy? So is Alexander the Great the one who finally brings down Assyria? No. Who brings down Assyria? Anyone? Awesome. And the kings? the king oh, I'm so, oh, sorry but yes if, uh, who who brings down Assyria and Babylon I'm sorry I was, I was moving too far forward I was moving to uh, Alexander the Great Alexander the Great brings down who Randy not Assyria and not Babylon Persians. Persia and Persia took down oh. Babylon okay so Assyria starts okay Babylon takes Assyria 612, Cyrus and Persia takes Babylon, 539, and Alexander takes Persia, 333, who takes Greece, Rome, Rome 63 B.C. Okay, all right, there's there's the sequence uh, from Babylon on down, it's all in the book of Daniel. It's all in Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 2. Assyria is not in that, but the gold head is Babylon itself. All right, now back to the collapse of Assyria. Because the map gives you the background to how it happened. You will notice in the block around the city of Babylon, that the one who liberated Babylon as a city from the dominance of the Assyrians was Nabopolassar. He is the father of whom? Nabopolassar is the father of whom? Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar is his his crown prince son. All right, so Nabopolassar rebels against Assyria in 626 B.C. He rebels after a civil war which broke out about 652 B.C. and lasted for four years, 648 B.C. He he comes after that civil war has weakened the Assyrian Empire because what the Assyrians did when Babylon revolted in 652 and carried on a revolution against Assyria, which was crushed incidentally in 648, what happened was that Babylon drained the Assyrian army. They drained its vitality, they drained its materiel, they drained its lifeline. They took the stuffing out of the Assyrian military because for four long years, they continued to fight, 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 and fight, and kill more, more, and more Assyrian soldiers. Now, the Assyrians finally did capture Babylon in 648. But Nabopolassar was able to take advantage of that weakness and 20 years later in 626 revolt against Assyria and completely throw off the yoke of Nineveh. All right, that begins the long march north. Nabopolassar has a carefully contrived uh, strategy to incrementally march up the Tigris and Euphrates River and knock off the Assyrian towns and cities as he goes. The first challenge that he meets <clears throat> comes in 616. Now, you'll notice that that arrow, which is dotted, comes from Egypt. And as you go to the far lower left of your map, you'll notice the name Semeticus I or Samtik I. He is the beginner of the so-called 26th Saint dynasties. The 26th dynasty, which comes to power in 655 or 654 BC in Egypt, drives out those Black African or Kushite or Nubian pharaohs. It breaks the power of that uh, centralization of Egyptian dominance in more central or West, or East Africa. All right, so <clears> the <throat> I is important because he brings Egyptians back to the throne of Egypt. However, He also does not want an upstart power in the east, which is going to bother him. So he is willing to march all the way out of Egypt in 616 and join with the Assyrians in order to attempt to stem the tide of the advance of Babylon under Nabopolassar. He does not succeed. Those two arrows which meet there, the dotted arrow coming from the west and the bold arrow coming from the south, those two arrows don't Uh, don't mean a victory for Nabopolassar or a victory for Semeticus I and his Assyrian allies. They fought to a draw. Both armies retreated, 616. Nabopolassar goes back to Babylon, he refits, and then he marches out again. Now, while he's on his way north in 614, Syaxares, who is the king of the Medes, conquers Asher. And in order to cement a relationship between Babylon and the Medes under Psyaxares, Psyaxares marries his daughter to the son of Nabopolassar. In other words, <clears throat> Babylon and Media become allies through a marriage. <clears throat> and that marriage of Nebuchadnezzar to the daughter of Psyaxares creates a union in which that woman, coming from the mountains of the Median Empire, longed to have the refreshing and cool uh, trees and breezes of her native mountain homeland. And in order to placate her, when Nebuchadnezzar became king of Babylon, he built for her the Hanging Gardens, which was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. So there is how that uh, relationship uh, was, in, was initiated and how it was uh, cemented. Uh, namely, uh, it was a long-term, uh, shall we say, perpetual birth, uh, wedding present from Nebuchadnezzar to his Median bride, the daughter of Psyaxeres, king of the Medes. All right, so Nebuchadnezzar gets there late. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar get there a little late in 614. However, in the mopping up, they get a bride and a uh, alliance and in 612, the two of them go further north and conquer Nineveh and burn it to the ground. Now, the theory of that siege is present in your next handout, namely the photo of the archaeology of the excavation from the Halsey Gate in Nineveh. What do you see there? You see bone upon bone. You see soldiers trapped at a narrow entrance to the gate of Nineveh in 612 with the Babylonians pouring through and trampling them into the ground as they kill them. Mixed in with these bones are Assyrian arrows and daggers, pieces of swords. These are probably all Assyrian soldiers that lie there. This excavation occurred in 1989 under the leadership of David Stronach, the late David Stronach at UC Berkeley. <clears throat> you can see the intensity. There are at least 15 bodies here. You don't see all of them. They're piled one on top of another. <clears throat> what had happened was in previous attempts to conquer Nineveh, <clears throat> which had failed, the Ninevites had realized they needed to protect the entrances, the gate entrances to their city. And so what they did was they narrowed the opening so that only a few soldiers who might be invaded could get through at one time. That's the reason you see these bodies piled up in virtually one place. They fell as the Babylonians trampled over them, killed them and trampled over them and continued to proceed into the city. This is the first concrete evidence of the fury of the defeat of the Assyrians and the collapse of Nineveh. We know that, in fact, this did occur, because other historians have said so, namely Greek historians, but the Bible says so, particularly what book of the Bible says so. One particular book of the Bible is focused on this battle in 612. Nahum, Nahum and Nineveh, the NNN boy. The oracle, verse 1 of Nahum, chapter 1, the oracle of Nahum against Nineveh. And in three chapters, Nahum describes how God is going to destroy that city. And in fact, the graphic detail that Nahum provides has been vindicated by the archaeological spade in terms of the horror of the collapse of that horrible empire. And so you see it here in the photograph. All right. Any questions about any of that? One, Go ahead, Randy. What year was that? That's 612. You can see it on your map.
1: The little block
0: on your map above Nineveh that says the conquest of Nineveh by the Median and Babylonian armies. Remember, they had been allied by the marriage of Nebuchadnezzar and the daughter of Tyaxares after 614. But there is a result of the collapse of Nineveh, which does not end the Assyrian Empire then. To all intents and purposes, 612 is the end of the Assyrian Empire, but in fairness and accuracy, we can only say it is the destruction of Nineveh because that black arrow that goes from Nineveh to Haran is a remnant of Assyrians who fly, flee to the west in order to establish an Assyrian Empire in exile. And that city, Haran, becomes the object of Pharaoh Necho. When he comes up through the pass of Megiddo, kills Josiah, and clashes with the Babylonians at Haran in 609 B.C. Okay, so there's the broad picture then of the significance of uh, Zephaniah's prediction. Uh, We therefore know that this prediction in verse 13 of chapter 2 is dated sometime before 612. He's predicting what is going to happen. and So we push back the date of Zephaniah from perhaps 604 or 605, which we suggested uh, could be a possibility at other times in this series, we push it back to 612 because it must precede the destruction of Nineveh. More precise than that, it is not possible yet to assign uh, the date of Zephaniah, sometime between 640 and 612. Randy, you had another question? Yeah, well, I find these things in Herodotus. If I go look, you can you can look up uh, some of the uh, descriptions of the fall of the ancient empires in Herodotus. That is correct. All right, take a break, and we'll come back to deal with the rest of the chapter. All right, now we turn our attention to verse 14, a very, very difficult passage to translate because the specific names of the types of animals here are virtually all unknown, and as a result... It's a bit of a guessing game to figure out what Zephaniah has particularly in mind. We'll take a look at the uh, language of the New American Standard where uh, the word pelican is used for the first specifically named animal or bird And Pelican is an impossibility. So I'm not sure uh, why they didn't go with their marginal reading, which is owl, which would be much more apropos to Palestine and to Judah and Israel. The reason that Pelican is not possible for Assyria or Nineveh, you can notice from the map uh, that you just looked at, Assyria is very far away from the Mediterranean Sea. Now, it is true that pelicans are known in Palestine. They still are known in Palestine, in Israel, because there is a flyway, migratory flyway, for pelicans that goes down into Central Africa and ends up in the north at the Danube River, the so-called famous Blue Danube. So twice a year, pelicans do pass through Palestine on their way to and from Danube River and Central Africa, where they uh, summer and winter. But they do not fly over the hot desert of the Arabian Peninsula. So, as I said, These are the beasts or the birds that are going to be present in Nineveh at the collapse of the city, destruction of the city, and the collapse of the Assyrian Empire. No pelicans there. All right, so owl, as a suggestion, is about as good a guess as any. The next name in the New American Standard, hedgehog. Now... If you know hedgehogs, <clears throat> particularly if you know the European hedgehog, cute little guys, um, <clears throat> uh, sometimes called an echidna, um, <clears throat> they're once again uh, not birds. And this context here is about birds. <clears throat> so uh, hedgehog doesn't make sense in this context. It is then possible that this word is referring to a short-eared owl. Naturalists who have looked at this vocabulary and thought about the types of birds which are common to the Tigris-Euphrates Valley suggest then in the one case an owl and in the second case a short-eared owl, a smaller species. These are guesses. There is no certainty about the very rare and strange Hebrew words that are here. But we come then to this uh, matter about lodging in the pillars. Now, hedgehogs don't climb pillars to lodge in windows. (laughs) They're cute little buggers, but I, I don't think they're climbing up walls or pillars. That's my point. So, what's lodging in the top of the pillars are birds, of course. The abandoned pillars, the uh, destroyed buildings that have left pillars standing when Babylonians destroyed Nineveh, Uh, they are rookeries. They are roosting spots for birds. And, of course, wherever there are birds roosting, they're going to be foul what they roost. And so these pillars have been befouled by the birds who are sitting on top of them. This is, of course, an image of the destruction and also the uh, rejection, the excoriation of Nineveh, including its city pillars. And then in the next line of the American Standard, it translates, birds will sing in the window." Now, actually, the Hebrew word is not birds. The word is "call" in Hebrew, which means voice. A voice will sing in the window. All right, now, it is true that if these windows are being occupied by birds, for instance, owls or short-eyed owls or any other kind of species of bird, that that sound, the sound of birds, will be heard in the open windows, any open windows that survived the destruction of the city. But this is the point of the image. The image means that the city is vacant of all human life. The only voice that is heard after the destruction of Nineveh is the voice of a soulless bird, that is, a beast or an animal or a bird without a soul, without a human persona. All other human life has been destroyed. And last of all, the desolation of the thresholds which have been laid in cedar work. Now when Sennacherib built Nineveh, After 701, after the 8th century BC. When he made this the palatial capital of his empire, he literally stripped mountains bare of cedar and paneled the walls of his temples and his palace and his other ornate buildings with cedar. Now, as you know, cedar is quite lovely. When it's particularly worked properly, the grain brought out properly, it's gorgeous and it's virtually indestructible. It'll last for years, last for centuries. But notice what God says is going to happen to the cedar work of Nineveh. It's going to be laid bare, and in being laid bare, it's going to rot, and it's going to go to utter ruin. In fact, that is the case of what has been found underneath those mounds at Nineveh. They found that even the cedar wood has rotted in many instances. All right, so we come to verse 15, and the phrase exalted city. What city is the prophet talking about? It's Nineveh, still the same city. Okay? It's the exalted city, which says in her heart, I am and there's no one besides me. Where do you know that phrase from anywhere else in the Bible? God says that about himself. himself. All right? Let's turn back to one of the best examples of that in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. Isaiah forty four verse six and when somebody has it please just read it out. No, wait a minute, I've got something wrong there. I apologize. What did you say, Ben? Isaiah 22. Isaiah 22. 22. Oh, I'm sorry. I was w- looking at Jeremiah. No matter. No wonder. <laughs> I, I don't know how far back to turn. <clears throat> yes, Isaiah 44, verse 6. There it is. <clears throat> there, there are other parallels to this in Isaiah. Ben is pointing to one, but let's take a look at this one. Read it out, whoever has it. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts: I am the first and the, I am the last; <clears throat> there is no god beside me. Now notice <clears throat> that that uh, passage in uh, Isaiah forty-four, six, most closely represents what Zephaniah quotes Nineveh as saying. I am, and there is no one besides me. I am the first. I am the first and the last. I am, and there is no God. There is no God besides me, Isaiah 44, 6. All right, now I've labeled this, uh, on your outline, self-divinization. What do I mean by self-divinization? Art? Well, they are claiming what is God. Yes, they are claiming what the deity or what divinity claims. So they are deifying themselves. They are divinizing themselves, divinizing themselves, claiming what God claims. So this is the height of arrogance. We've had uh, the arrogance of the Moabites and the Ammonites in verses 8 to 10. But here... We have an arrogance which goes back to the Tower of Babel, thinking that they have a right to be on the place or in the place of God himself. Now, this, of course, is what fed that powerful machine of war that trampled one kingdom after another when the Assyrians marched and remarched, crisscrossed and re the whole Mesopotamian Crescent for over 300 years. When the kings go out to war, and the Assyrian kings went out to war every spring, there was always somebody else to conquer, always more booty to get, always some other heads to chop off. That was what the Assyrians did for over 300 years, virtually year by year by year. And they did it because they thought that they were equal to their God. They thought that they were the living, moving force and power of their God. They deified themselves in terms of a godlike. Power, but all who pass by Nineveh after six twelve will hiss and wave their hand in contempt. If there's nobody there, (laughs) you mean? (laughs) Yeah, because he did something. It's kind of like well, well, because when you pass by in your caravan and you hiss in contempt, because within 20, 50 years of the collapse of Nineveh, you would remember what they did, and so you would hiss in contempt of the fact that they had brutalized the world, and perhaps even your part of the world. All right, the physical destruction of this magnificent city is laid out, albeit briefly by Zephaniah in these three verses. It is nonetheless... Laid out graphically. That majestic metropolis was now nothing but a haunt for birds and beasts. A metropolis alive with workers and shoppers and mothers with children in tow and soldiers and courtiers and priests and priestesses and artisans and gardeners. A mighty metropolis is mute. Silent, no human voice, no human soul, no human movement. This metropolis has nothing but stark ash and dirt and sand and devastation. Where is the luxury of Sennacherib's majestic capital? The lavish wealth of Nineveh the Great. It is burned under tons and literally feet upon feet of rubble entombed in mounds of debris over 90 feet high. You can still see those 90-foot mounds arising from the plains below Mosul. Her palatial halls entombed, entombed in rubble, her paneled walls dedicated to tyranny, terrorism, brutality, enslavement of the weak, raw power over others, all of it Devastated, and yet the archaeologist Spade has revealed it. Virtually all the monuments and walls of the Assyrians in Nineveh are filled with war images, decapitated corpses, bodies flayed alive. That's the image that is left on the monuments of the Assyrian panels. British Museum, the... uh, the wall of Sennacherib. Her chiseled artwork, some of the finest in the ancient world, featuring her ruthless army campaigns, her majestic lion hunts, her grandeur built on the blood of thousands upon thousands upon thousands, all that finery, all that brutality, ash, dust sand, her vaunted and venerated gods and goddesses, deities dedicated to tyranny, terrorism, brutality, enslavement of the weak, raw power over others, all those gods and goddesses decimated, powerless, nothing but empty wood, stone and metal. The reverse paradigm has turned the glorious city into ruin. She who lived by the sword died by the sword. What Nineveh and Assyria had sown, that Nineveh and Assyria reaped. What ruin. What bankruptcy. What vanity. What a testimony to the wrath of God in history. The physical devastation of Assyria and Nineveh, exegetical of the moral and spiritual degradation of Nineveh and Assyria. The city that made itself like unto a god had the true God as its executioner. And all tyranny. All tyranny, ancient and modern, archaic and contemporary, all tyranny ends in the same way. Ash and dust and ruin and silence. The silence of death. The bloody city filled with its own blood this blood this ash this dust this silence all the staccato cadence of death 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 and the final chorus Nineveh is no more Chapter 2 of the prophet Zephaniah ends with darkness. The inky black of the void of desolation. Desolation, blackness from west to east. Inky void of darkness from south to north. Darkness from the regional enemies of the Lord God and his people to the international enemies of the Lord God and his people. Death, and its accompanying graves, black with deep darkness. The lamp of Zephaniah, remember chapter 1, verse 12? The search lamp of Zephaniah casts its glow upon the pagan nations, which circumnavigate the four points of the compass and reflect back In that lamplight, the darkness, the only darkness, the nothing but darkness, continually. It is the same reflection arising from the searchlight of Zephaniah, which he casts into the corners of Jerusalem and Judah. Judah, like the pagan nations, full of darkness. Jerusalem, like the enemy powers, no light. No light in the kingdom of Israel, no light in the land of Palestine, no light in the promised land. Indeed, Zephaniah's search lamp casts its glow into the darkness, and darkness is reflected back again. The light comes from the lamp in the prophet's hand. The only light arises from the words of God the Lord, who himself dwells in unapproachable light. There is no light anywhere else, save in the living God and his servant, the prophet. There is no light anywhere else, save in the light of the world, who is the only begotten Son of the Father of lights. Outside of this eschatological bearer of light, there is only eternal darkness. Apart from this eschatological prophet, who is the light of life, there is only death and terror and tyranny, and evil, dark, black, evil, the path before us, either Christ and light, or Satan and black, inky darkness. Zephaniah's light still casts its glow into the contemporary world and increasingly in the days in which you and I live in our part of these last days what is reflected back is inky black darkness to whom shall we go There is no place else to go save to the light of the world, who is Jesus. Let's pray. We are overawed by the fury of your wrath, O Lord, a fury which erased this glorious city of Nineveh from the face of history and buried it deep in the rubble of your anger, your just and righteous vengeance, buried it under tons of sand and dirt and ash. So you have continued to deal with evil and wicked tyrannical powers in the course of history, even down to our time. And so we are warned and alerted that you will deal with the wicked even in part in this world. And you will judge nations in your equity because you will righteously call them to account in this world. Where is the permanence of brutality? Where is the permanence of ugly terror? Where is the permanence of crass and brute savagery? You have measured it. You have found it wanting. You have judged it. And in many instances in this world, you have destroyed it. In all of that, Lord, The lamp which you shine is an invitation to come out of the darkness into the light of the world, who is your wonderful, redeeming Son, our Savior. He took the wrath. He bore the brutality. He endured the savagery. He was subject to the darkness itself for our redemption and eternal life we hold fast to him and to no other for besides him and you O father and you blessed holy spirit there is no god nor power, nor life. All else, like Nineveh, is death. So we leave with faith in him who is that light and with a kingdom in which there is eternal glory, the light of your everlasting radiance, the faces of your sons and daughters forever and ever. We bless you for that grace through Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, and the light of our life. Amen.